0: Malaya I'm Colleen Seidmininyi and this is Yoga for Life. There's an underlying belief that somehow we aren't enough, that we are unworthy frauds and losers. In Yoga for Life, we will uncover these self-imposed limitations that are keeping us from contentment and freedom. We will talk about caring too much what others think, fear of not adding up, seeking comfort, divorce, aging, relationships, grief, power, and of course, sex, one of my favorite topics. In this podcast, you can expect open, real, and raw dialogue about what keeps our hearts heavy, spirit hidden, and potential limited. We will give you yoga tools to peel back the layers, to find compassion and love for the person that is living in your body, and to learn to live the present moment fully with all of its glory and its pain. You're listening to Yoga for Life, a Himalaya learning production. For exclusive content like yoga videos to accompany the podcast that you've just heard, go to Himalaya.com and enter promo code YOGA for your first 14 days free. We hope you enjoy. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about, all from the comfort of your home, isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Every week, we will clear the slate and begin each podcast with a short meditation. You don't have to know how to meditate. You just sit. So find an easy seat. For this meditation, all I'm going to ask you to do is sit with what arises. So sit. Notice what comes up. Notice your thoughts. Notice your feelings. And stay. Don't reach for something to cover it up. Don't run away from it. Simply stay. Stay with what is. Whether it's beautiful or painful. Be here now. Watch. Observe. Love. Do not judge. What are you feeling? I'm not even asking you not to think. I'm asking you to notice what. Is and to notice when you want to reach for comfort, when you want to distract yourself, and come back to the beauty of this moment. Breathing in and breathing out. Gather your hands in front of your heart, bowing your head to your heart. Dedicate this meditation, and since today's topic is addiction, go ahead and send love to someone that you know, it may be yourself, that is struggling with addiction. Pure love, no judgment, and no blame. Namaste. Thank you for tuning in to Yoga for Life. I'm Colleen Seibin yi Today we have sensei's Chodo and Koshin talking to us about the complexities of addiction. So, who are these fellas? A lot of you know who they are, but just in case, I'll give you a little background. Sensei Koshin Paley Ellison is an author, a Zen teacher, a Jungian psychotherapist and a certified chaplaincy educator. Koshin co-founded the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care. He's the author of Wholehearted, Slow Down, Help Out, and Wake Up, and the co-editor of Awake at the Bedside, Contemplative Teachings on Palliative and End of Life. His work has been featured pretty much everywhere. The New York Times, PBS, CBS Sunday Morning, Tricycle, you name it. The two monks are practitioners of the Soto Zen lineage. Koshin was first ordained as a monk in 2002. Chodo was ordained in 2005. The two were unofficially wed in 2007 and then legally married in the state of New York in 2017. Sensei Robert Chodo Campbell is also the co-founder of the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care. Chodo is a dynamic, grounded, and visionary leader and teacher. He has traveled extensively around the world instructing at every institution. His podcast is wildly successful, and I guarantee you will see why when you hear his voice and his words. His passion lies in bereavement counseling and advocating for change in the way our healthcare institutions work with the dying. Such wonderful work both of you are doing. I really appreciate you being here to speak on a subject that you really wouldn't expect two Buddhist monks to be talking about. But what's funny is we're not talking about end-of-life or dying or contemplative care today. We're talking about addiction. I gave you many different options of topics—compassion, grief, dying, forgiveness but you both lit up with addiction. So guys, talk to us about that. Why did you choose this topic for two beautiful monks that have spent their lifetime uh, working with dead and dying and chaplaincy and contemplative care? Why do you want to talk to us about addiction today?
1: Well, first of all, it's a joy to be with you, Colleen. And we, well, I can speak for myself, is that addiction is- Who are you? (laughs) You're coaching. I'm Koshin.
0: <laughs> the relationship dynamics come out right away.
1: So for me, addiction is the one of the core things that we have to work with. And I think that we'll be exploring kind of the more famous addictions of alcohol and drugs. But I think that one of the ways that keep us from Living a loving and intimate life is our addiction to our self-protective patterns and our old stories. And so that's where I light up is because I feel like the work of Contemplative Care and the Center and our life work is actually about how do you face and just get real about what holds you back from fully engaging a loving, intimate life.
0: Beautiful. Do you have anything to add to that, Chodo?
1: Always
2: um, <laughs> <laughs> so for me, I think it's really important to realize that just because I'm a Zen Buddhist monk and I've done all this work around my own inner demons, it doesn't alter the fact that I'm still an addict. you know, it's just I've just changed the substances. And there are so often we meet teachers who are, Put on pedestals, and they're seen as these perfect human beings, these perfect individuals. And then when they fall off the pedestal, it's like a huge shock to all the community. And I am really, really upfront with I mean, my Dharma talks talk about my addictions and my difficulties with all my difficulties of life. I don't hold back on anything. I, for me, I maintain my sobriety by not holding on to any ideas of how I should present myself in the world without the truth of it at all, all the the shadow sides as well as, you know, as well as the brightness that comes out of the work that I do. I have a shadow side and it has to do with addiction.
0: And I think that's why you're so beloved. You lay it out there and therefore give us the permission to also do the same. So I thank you so much for your honesty and, and your vulnerability as well. So Hooked literally means triggered, right? And I know you guys talk about that feeling of being triggered um, quite (laughs) often. But, you know, hooked on, you know, drugs, alcohol, social media, ice cream, anger, exercise, TV, like this always needing to be comfortable and not wanting to ever really feel pain. Uh, One of my favorite singer-songwriters, his name is Justin Towns Earl, was a meth addict and lived on and off the streets in Chicago for 12 years. And what he said is one of his shows, and I also uh, share a history like you do, uh, Chodo, and I am also very upfront about it. So when he said this at his show, it just really hit me hard. He says, the question isn't really why we are such an addictive society, but why are we in so much pain? Um, That's a huge question, but I would love to hear some insights from you on that question.
1: The world is full of pain and joy. You know, in our tradition, we talk about it as the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And those are really happening all the time, as we know so clearly now, with racial inequity and COVID-19 and this time that we're in, where, you know, the mirror is so close. And so to really use this time to look at what always has been there, and yet now is clearer than ever. I mean, I feel like the joy of life is to be the willingness to look at all of our pain, our struggle, our joys, our love, and how do we engage? How do we engage what is right in front of us without going for a substance or a pattern you know the buddha talked about it as the wheel of suffering and the wheel is real it's like the wheel of rumination and addiction and mm. so how do we break the wheel for me
2: i think it comes out of i can only speak from my own experience but growing up in a an environment where pain was covered with substances. you know the case of my mother whether it was uh, alcohol or amphetamines or clothes so just to cover up the pain that she was living in. So the model for me was, don't show your pain, no matter what. Even if you're getting the crap beaten out of you, do not cry. Don't show your pain. So, and I think so many of us, so many addicts come from that same place to, I am not going to let you see how, how much in pain I am. So I'm going to cover it up. And what happened for me was it wasn't until I got sober that I realized I'm in pain. And most of the world that I know consists of people that are in pain, that have just never shown it. And how do we shine a light on that darkness?
0: Do you feel like part of that pain is because of the armor, the alienation, uh, the isolation, because we're afraid to show who we really are? Um, I know one of my teachers says that the biggest issue is actually loneliness
2: yeah i mean you know again as an active alcoholic and substance abuser you know there are times when i can say oh i had the best time it was the happiest i was i was having so much fun yeah 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 i so i would sober up for a day or so and realize just how lonely i was even in a crowd in a bar and a disco and it's just so terribly alone that was the feeling that was always with me i'm on my own and it also came out of this idea of i'm a survivor I can do anything I want, don't worry, you can't harm me in any way. But that was just the cover up for the reality of, I'm so lonely, I have no idea who I am in the world. So I'll just present this gregarious, fun-loving drunk and there's nothing further from the truth.
1: You know, in my experience too, and I've written about this quite a bit, about feeling a pride in being like a lone wolf and being alone in the world and being kind of I thought the image of the lone wolf was so exciting and just like, I'm by myself and I don't really need anyone. And it kind of came from a history of lots of, you know, emotional and physical and sexual pain and suffering. And I was on a Greyhound bus, like when I was 18, and this woman was sitting next to me and she said, Oh, so are you a Buddhist or something? And I said, Oh, yeah, I'm a Buddhist. And she was like, that's cool. You know, so who are your teachers? And I'm like, oh, I study with Jack Cornfield and Sharon Salzberg and all these wonderful people. And she's like, oh, so you're a lone wolf. And I was elated. I said, yes, I am. And she said, you know, what's interesting about a lone wolf is that they're sick wow. and lost their pack. And I remember thinking, holy moly. You know, it was a big wake up for me and realizing that the ways I had used to protect myself from being vulnerable, from being actually learning how to belong and learning how to trust other people was also an addiction. You know, it was like addicted to my identity as a lone wolf, you know, as someone who, like in quotes, doesn't really need anyone or or, I'm not a joiner. I hear that a lot.
0: Right, you hear of thick skin, like that's a good thing. And then that creates again this this armor so that you are alone, you've got this, right? Pull up your bootstraps and get on with life. Thank you both so much for that. Koshin, I wanna stick with you for a moment. You know, I am a big proponent of meditation. Obviously I'm a yoga teacher and I'm constantly trying to bring people into the present moment and notice when they're triggered. And instead of going to that place of comfort, Whatever your addiction of choices uh, drugs, alcohol, social media, food, shopping, sex, sugar, any kind of addiction to cover up the pain, I'm saying, you know, come to the present moment. But you had said the other day that even meditation can be a form of addiction. Please expand on that for me.
1: Yeah, I think many people come to the practice because they want to feel better. And so they will kind of bury themselves in a practice as if the whole time kind of slinging and reaching and grasping for this kind of, you know, like the Time Magazine cover with a woman in her bathing suit, you know, looking blissed out. And I think that there's a hunger for that. But the reality is meditation, the beauty of it is it really teaches you not how to be in bliss, but how to be with what is. Noticing your addictions arising, noticing how you feel lonely, noticing how you feel enraged or scared or anxious or completely ecstatic or blissful or whatever it is. It's like the whole canopy of feelings. And so in learning how to feel your feelings without becoming your feelings, many people use meditation to kind of hide out from actually what they're actually feeling. And so it becomes an addiction. Yeah. You
0: know? And we hear, oh, I had a great meditation in the idea that you're supposed to feel blissful in meditation, but it's just sheer hard work, as is getting sober.
1: Well, you could say meditation is a sober practice. It's about learning how to get really clear and clean and sober so that you can see clearly what just is, which, of course, our teacher likes to say, easy to say, and takes everything to do.
0: Exactly. Chodo. we had a fun conversation talking about uh, <laughs> life in New York City in, in the 80s and realizing that that kind of lifestyle would end up killing us. And we decided that we faced the sober reality of, of getting sober. But we also talked about that craving doesn't actually end. And even on our deathbed, when we wouldn't be hurting others, we fantasize about going back to it. And there's two directions I'd like to take this. Was there a turning point for you when you realized that you were in a rabbit hole that you needed to climb out of? And what was that process? It's like it's all very well we say, oh, we're going to get sober. I know I'm addicted to this. But what happens and what is the process? Like, what is the action point when you realize that this has taken over your life? And the second place I'd like to take it is, do you think that succumbing to that wish would be a peaceful way to go? And you mentioned something about a Marlboro and a shot of whiskey. So I know that's a couple of things um, in there, but I'd like for you to hit on a little bit of both of those.
2: Okay. So, of course, my uh, monkhood came after my fall from grace and into into sobriety. So whatever I talk about now was pre-priesthood. So there were a couple of moments, I guess, for turning points in my addiction. One was picking up an ex-Vietnam vet in a bar uh, in the village and bringing him back to my apartment. And it turned out he was kind of psychotic and held me hostage at gunpoint for four and a half hours in my apartment, threatening to kill me. And I was so energized by the, this uh, sense of danger, this sense of, wow. You know, coming from a very violent background as a child and as a teen, it was like, okay, let's go with this. You know, there, there was no fear because somehow in the back of my mind, you know, I knew I would survive this. And I did obviously. Uh, you know, there was a way that I worked with this situation. So I told my therapist about this situation, and just another one in the whole line of insane stories. And she said to me, you know, we've been working together now for the last five, six years, and I have to tell you, we we need to come to closure. I'm like, what? And she said, most of the time you come in here, you've had a cocktail. You don't remember what we spoke about the week before, and I'm afraid you're going to kill yourself or get killed, and I don't want to be a part of that. So here is the number of a friend of mine who is in AA, she has a lot of sobriety, give her a call. And if you haven't given her a call by next week, don't come back. And in that moment, I knew that my lifeline was shredding because this was the first person in my life that I actually trusted. This person that I knew had my back and stuck it out with me. And she knew that I was drinking while we were in session. She knew that I had a cocktail before. And in the end, she just said, you know, Chota a rubber. You got to clean your act. Otherwise, you're, I'm not going to see you anymore. And that, to me, was the, the moment. It was a moment before that. There's, there are too many stories. But that was the moment that I realized it was over. You know, my, Those days had to be behind. And so... Um, and you didn't want to lose her. I didn't want to lose her. She was my life. You know, out of all... The, the friends, in parentheses, I had in New York City and all the, the goodies that I had out in Sag Harbor where I, I had a house, it all meant nothing in the end because I was so, to use that word again, so lonely with everything I had. It just amounted to nothing. So I took her, I took heat and I went to my first AA meeting. It was up on, the, on Park Avenue the Church of the Heavenly Dressed and I thought, I'm going to walk into this room and this is not going to be for me because it was just not my style. It was on Park Avenue. I was used to the (laughs) Lower East Side. uh, I walked into this room and I thought I had to leave. And the first person that spoke told my story. And I was like, wow, if they can get sober, I can get sober. It was amazing. And yeah, so I've worked with my, so, so my sponsor of, 25 years before he died, we had this pact. It was like whoever dies first gets to pick up their drug of choice while they're on their deathbed, or while we're going out. And his was Marlboro Red, and a bottle of rye. And I said, "Okay, John, you got it." And mine is a bottle of port and also a Marlboro Red. So I had a bottle of good port on my deathbed, you know, just the days before. And um, as he was dying, actually, I mean, I took care of him for about three years as he progressed towards his death. And then a couple of weeks before he died, I said, remember our pack, John? I said, I'm gonna get you a pack of Marlboro Red and a bottle of rye. And he said, you know what, honey, I don't want it. I've been sober 35 years. What's the point? And I don't need a drug right now to take me out of where I am. I'm in my dying process. I wanna stay awake for that. I don't wanna be drunk going through my dying process this is the only time I will do this. I wanna be awake for it. I wanna be sober for it. And I was like, you got it, baby, you got it. And uh, he died without, I wouldn't say he died sober because of a lot of other hangups, but he definitely died without the drink, without without the cigarette. And ironically, it was the cigarettes that were killing him. We had COPD and it was beautiful. It was just so beautiful to be with him at the end, to see the clarity of him saying, I just want to be totally sober for this journey, my last journey. And that's what I would want, too.
0: Beautiful. So beautiful. Thank you for um, sharing that with us. Any advice on how to recognize and admit an addiction? And then what? Does a spiritual practice come into play? And again, we're talking about big addictions, but I think that everybody can relate to addiction on some level. And a lot of times addictions are replaced with other addictions. For instance, I, I think that there's an addiction to social media right now. It's like, look at me, affirm me, I'm great, right? And we have this addiction to be noticed, to be made relevant somehow through social media. And we also have an addiction maybe, this is a question, to comparison, right? We have an addiction to beating ourselves up, going through social media, and um, finding another way to feel badly about ourselves. So there's so many different ways to be addicted. And once we recognize it, or how do we even recognize it? And does a spiritual practice come into play? I know, uh, Chodo, for you, you started your spiritual practice after you had this come-to-God moment that was based in love. But I'd like for you to back up a little bit and talk about the daily addictions that we're in. And that's for either one of you.
2: I'm addicted to the idea that I'm not worthy, that I'm not smart enough, that I'm not attractive enough. I hate having my photograph taken. I crawl out of my skin when somebody pays me a compliment about the way I look. The worst thing you can say to me is, oh God, you're so attractive or something along those lines. Because again, that's not a model I grew up with. You know, the model I grew up with was very different to that. So, and this is kind of, a, there is a kind of addiction to that because I can hide behind it. It's about not fully realizing who actually I could be. And so that comes out of fear. It's a fear of being fully, fully, fully who I am. And um, it's something I've been working with since uh, I met Koshin, which is 18, 19 years ago, who constantly reaffirms you're not that person anymore. You are this, you are worth that. But, you know, having been indoctrinated and then living through, you know, living with addiction and constantly revalidating my thoughts about feeling like shit about myself. So it's a lot, there's a lot of work still to do for me. And I've been sitting on that cushion for nearly 30 years and it's still a lifetime practice to really get to appreciate who I am and who I can be in the world. So my, yeah, I'm addicted to, still addicted to those old stories. And of course, I also see the reality But getting out of the addiction is still a work in progress.
0: Koshin, on that, can you talk to the loved ones of addicts I deal with a lot of um, of mothers of loved ones and they're looking for maybe what they did wrong or how they could do better and this person wouldn't be addicted if it weren't for me and there's so much shame both around the addiction but from the loved ones like how do I how do I care for my loved one that is addicted. I know I have this going on in my family right now, and there's so much feeling of you can't do enough or whatever I'm doing, it's falling short.
1: No, it's a great question, you know, because I, you know, I'm one of those people, right? So I'm married to an addict. And to me, I can see Choto's openness and struggle are so real and so visceral. And I feel like in some ways, some of his addictions are not active. He's sober from, and as he just shared, you know, that addiction is actually, I think, maybe even more painful. And to me, learning how to love him in his struggle and know that I can't actually change his brain, you know, he has his ghosts, but to love Choto because of his ghosts and his demons, to include what he struggles with, is to love him fully and to know that I can't undo what has happened to him and it's not my fault that I my love doesn't. I think it's a misunderstanding of what love is actually, that my love's job is not to make sure that it undoes who he is, but actually includes the parts of him that are haunted and mysterious and gorgeous and rich and deep and all of it. It's actually what I learned from my grandmother when she was dying, when she said to love someone is to love all the aspects of them, even the ones that scare you and that you don't understand. And so for me, it doesn't mean that it's easy And yet it's totally possible. And it's actually how I know I love him so much.
0: Okay. um, It's hard to talk through tears, but I'm going to give it a go here. I think what you're saying is very important for all of our listeners to hear and that we're not trying to get rid of something. We're not cutting something out. We're not extricating it we are holding it and loving it and cradling it and creating space for it so that it doesn't become your entire identity. I have one last subject I'd like to bring up here, and that is, you know, we hear all the time, addiction is a disease, but we don't deal with it as a disease. When someone has a disease, there's compassion and empathy, and there isn't really shame around it. But with addiction, there's so much shame and blame. Can you just address that? Like, how should we be dealing with addicts if we really believe that it is a disease? How do we change our methodology around dealing with addiction?
2: It's a tough one. You know, I would say, you know, I walk both sides of the fence. Firstly, I would say we can only do it through love, to be able to accept the person for who they are inherently before they became addicted. What was it that drove them to that career, if you like? And to also be able to stand back. I spent many years in Al-Anon. I kind of got a black belt in Al-Anon to be able to stand back and say, you know what, this is yours, it's not mine. I can only lead you to the water. I can't make you drink it. For me, that's also showing love for this person because I don't want to get caught up in this shit. I want to help them. I want to see it as a disease. I do see it as a disease. And I want the person that I'm working with or the person that I'm in relationship with to see it also that it is something we can't cure it, but we can live with it. It can be in remission if you like, and it can be in remission for the rest of our lives. And people slip and they come back and they slip. So I have a program of recovery on Zoom twice a month. And it's addicts from all different rooms. And there's one heroin addict that comes in. She's there every week. And for years, she has been slipping for the last 10, 15 years, in, out, in, out, in, out. But she comes back because we can hold her. There's no shame or blame. It's like, yeah, honey, you went out again. Now you're back. Let's start over again. And for some, they're never gonna stay clean. We still have to love them.
0: Love them, but not necessarily make it your job to fix it's them. Not,
2: it's not my job to <laughs> fix you in any way at all. You know, it's like, honey, I've been there. I've done that. <laughs> I'm not doing it for you. And you're not gonna do me what I'm doing it for you. No, this is your job. I can only give you the benefit of my experience and tell you how much I'm capable of loving you. If you can't receive that, that's okay too. But I'm here for you anytime you want to come back.
0: Beautiful. Uh, Do you have any last words?
2: We love you.
0: Oh my gosh. (laughs) I (laughs) love you guys so much.
1: My last word would be, don't wait. And to use life as an adventure and we have such a short time and i think about this amazing text that says you know life is like a bubble in a stream or a flash of lightning in a summer cloud it's so precious and so brief it's a miracle to be alive and we don't there's no clear reports back after but we know we have this chance so reach out connect with other people and find community beautiful yeah and i would say no
2: matter how much fun you think you're having with your drugs and your party and your alcohol it's much more fun sober this life is so precious and to be able to see it clearly not through the haze of substance or grief or whatever just try it you know what try it for a few days try to see what it looks like sober it's a very different world
0: and it really is one day at a time
2: For me, at one point, it was an hour
1: at a time. A moment at a time. A moment moment at at
2: a time. And you know what? Even this life now, it's still moment by moment by moment, because now I realize all I have is this moment. I don't know if I have a next moment. So it's a moment at a
0: time. Beautiful. So all paths lead back to love and to knowing that you are enough. Thank you so much, sensei's chodo and koshin. We hope that you have gotten a new perspective and understanding of addiction and some tools to navigate the root question of why we are in so much pain. You have been listening to Yoga for Life with Colleen Seidman Yee. Tune in next week when we'll be talking about forgiveness. Thank you all for joining. Know you are enough. Namaste. Thank you for listening. To get the most out of this show, check out the yoga videos available only on the Himalaya Learning platform. Himalaya Learning provides bite-sized courses from world-class thinkers and industry experts for you to enjoy in the app, on the go. To access exclusive content for this show and others like it, go to Himalaya.com and enter promo code YOGA for your first 14 days free we hope you enjoy. This podcast is produced, recorded and mixed by Cynthia Daniels at Monk Music Studios in East Hampton, New York. The theme music for Yoga for Life was composed by Rob and Melissa. Come on a journey like no other where you will discover many rogues that will lead you to a happier, healthier and more stress-free life.